0: Now, what I'm going to be doing tonight is I'm going to be beginning a series on the Lord's Prayer, and the Lord's Prayer is one of three key things that from the days of Augustine have been identified pretty much as what are called the essentials, and there is an interesting phrase attributed to Augustine. He didn't actually say it, but he had the thoughts. And it's interesting when you follow the history of it, they can track through how this sort of saying started, sort of came into place, and they've identified there was a Lutheran bishop in the 16th century, not long after Luther himself, um, who who was first really identified as saying it in exactly these words, that in the essentials, Christians must have unity. In the non-essentials, and by the way, non-essentials does not mean non-important, Many of the what are called the non-essentials are very important. It's just that these essentials are sort of specially important. Uh, But in the non-essentials, diversity, but in all things, love. And interestingly enough, the Church of Christ network of churches adopted that. And for many years, that was almost like the Church of Christ slogan. And everybody thought that that's where it came from. You know, it's better that it actually didn't come just from the Church of Christ. It is a statement of unity of the whole body of Christ. Every person who believes in Jesus, no matter how accurately or inaccurately, is our brother and our sister in Christ and in the essentials with everyone. We have unity. In the non-essentials, even though they're very important, we'll listen to each other, discuss, debate, concern, form our understandings. That's great, but we're not, in all things, we'll do it with love and a place of dialogue. So what I'm going to be doing is I'm going to be just looking for this these four nights on the Lord's Prayer. Now, the Lord's Prayer, many people, modern Christians so much for these days, people have stopped memorising things, but people of my generation, the Lord's Prayer was sort of kind of like you just knew it. You said it, and you said it all the time. Often it didn't mean anything. It was just a lot of words that were sort of spiritual, and it sort of got a bit debased. But if you... What's the old saying? Familiarity breeds contempt, But the thing is, just because something has been neglected, it doesn't stop it being what it is. And this is a jewel of immense beauty, is a pearl of incredibly great price. So tonight, what I'm going to do is, first of all, we're going to read the Lord's Prayer together, and then I'm going to focus on the context and background of the Lord's Prayer because it's placed in a very special place in the Scriptures and to really understand the Lord's Prayer, we actually have to understand where it turns up in Scripture and why it's there. First of all, let me read it to you. Uh, This version here says, Our Father who art in heaven. By the way, that art bit, the these and thous. I used to think, why do people say these and thous? That's not modern. The interesting thing is, The fact that we don't say thee and thou anymore and it sounds strange to us, and by the way, I'm not recommending we go back to it because it will still sound strange to us, but it is an indicator of something to do with the health of our society. Uh, Who studied French? Okay, if I use the French too, that's very intimate, isn't it? Vous... If I'm speaking to somebody I don't know, I will still say vu, and it's singular. But if you are somebody close to me, I would call my wife too. Right? But somebody I'm just meeting, I would say vu. And it's, it's, it's what's called the intimate singular pronoun. Thou is the intimate singular. For thou art great. When we speak of God like that, speaks of an intimate closeness to God. But now we just say you, and it's sort of at a less reverent distance. I'm not recommending we go back to it, but I'm saying there's an invitation from God for that kind of closeness just in the way the language is used. Our Father who art, A-R-T, you don't say... We say you are, we say thou art. That's the form that indicates that the intimate singular is being used. Our Father, you, the intimate one, close to me in heaven... Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. There's all the intimate singular, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Now that's the form of the Lord's Prayer that comes from the Gospel of Matthew. The thine is the kingdom bit, that was added later, and it's a traditional thing, and we'll talk a little bit that about that as we go along. The interesting thing is that the Lord's Prayer is found in the center of the Sermon on the Mount. And this is interesting because the Sermon on the Mount is kind of like Jesus' inaugural speech. You know when somebody gets up to start something, they come and say, now this is the policy statement. So the Sermon on the Mount is kind of like Jesus' policy statement. He says, every single thing that I'm going to do, you have to understand in terms of this agenda. This is what I am putting into effect. And that's contained in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5 to 7, three pages. Three pages. You can read them, you can gloss over them, it's amazing, but they are profound, intimate, world-changing three pages. Barely a pamphlet. The Lord's Prayer is at the centre of the Sermon on the Mount. One way that has been represented in recent years has been to show the significance of something being at the centre of something. There's the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer begins with the Beatitudes, starts with an expansion on what Jesus called the greater righteousness than the Pharisees. In other words, you've got to be better than the Pharisees. And he explained how that related to what we would call the Old Testament law. And then the greater righteousness and piety, saying, well, okay, here we start with the Beatitudes, which is your basic disposition. Here we start to think about what's right and wrong and how we put that into place. Greater righteousness and piety, this has to do with how we approach God. All right, so I've got to get my disposition right. I have to understand how God wants his law and principles to work and agree with him, and then I have to approach God with appropriate respect and reverence. It's then I can pray the Lord's Prayer meaningfully. It's like the Scripture says, who who can come to the Lord, Who, who can climb the mountain of the Lord is he who has clean hands and a pure heart. So there's like a spiritual preparation, spiritual disciplines need to be at work in our lives as we work on developing the dispositions by which we're able to approach God. And it's not like God says, if you don't do this, it's like there's something you've got to do in order to get there. It's like he's saying, you need to become this kind of person in order to be able to appreciate it, in order to be able to understand where I'm at. Having done that, we then have the great... This is greater righteousness and wealth. It's sort of greater righteousness and aspects of practical living greater righteousness and how we relate to people and then understand that there are two ways. The interesting thing in this bit on the two ways is fascinating. The statement there, if you build your house upon the rock and people say, well, the rock is Jesus, strictly speaking theologically, Jesus would, might disagree with that. It's kind of metaphorically right. It's not completely wrong, but in the context, it's actually it wasn't what he was saying. And because we say the rock we're going to build the house on is Jesus, that's true, you've got to build your life on Jesus, I don't doubt that. But in the context of what was said here, that's not what Jesus was saying. He was actually saying, if you build your house on what I've said in the Sermon on the Mount, then you will be somebody who the wind won't wash away and the the rains won't wash away. uh, Winds blow, I, I put the two together, you know what I meant. Okay. All right. Another thing we need to understand in approaching the Sermon on the Mount before we get to the Lord's Prayer proper are two words, there's two key words I want you to look at. Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount by saying, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And This is this word, blessed. The fascinating thing is a lot of the way the word blessed has entered our language is we think blessed means we're going to get something from God so that if I do the Beatitudes right, I'm going to get seven blessings because there's seven Beatitudes. I'm going to get all these blessings because of the Beatitudes. and If I do it right, I'll get them. It actually doesn't say that either. Our English language distorts the original intention. The Greek word was makarios. And it refers to having true happiness and flourishing. Jesus was basically saying, listen... If you want to have a really a life that works, understand how to mourn, because then you shall be comforted. And and if and if you hunger and thirst after righteousness, then you're gonna have your fill. It's not like if you hunger and thirst after righteousness, then I will bless you. No. He's saying this good thing will naturally come from your life if your life is pointed in that direction. It's more to do with a disposition then something you get. And so here's a way of looking at that. Here's the person, this is you or me. Some people think that, that if, if, with blessed it means we get the blessing and the blessed will come, blessing is something that comes to me, whereas the actual word here means it's, it's kind of like something I become. We think of it as what I get. This is what I get to be. So if, I'm, if I mourn or hunger and thirst after righteousness, I will become the person who's able to have my fill. It's a formational thing more than it is a transaction. It's like some, not a transaction between you and God. It's something God's wanting to form to give us a life of full flourishing. So it's not that. It's the other. The second, and so it's what I get to be. The second key word is this word teleios. Jesus said, I would have you perfect as my father is perfect. That's what we've often heard in the Sermon on the Mount. The interesting thing is the word perfect actually means wholeness. It means, it it actually is a word that comes from telos, which means target. It means... I want you to be people who hit the mark, who hit the target just like the Father and I do. We're going to cause you. I'm going to cause you, if you enter into the life that I've got for you, I'm going to cause you to hit the mark like the Father and I hit the mark. You're going to get it like we get it. You're going to be with us like we're with us. And this, and so the word perfect really means something more like that. Here's, here's a little statement here. Living a life of integrity and openness that accords with the purpose of the creator and is in harmony with fellow creatures and delights in obedience toward God. Now, these dispositions are putting us in the kind of direction and shape as we adopt these things to the point where we come to where we can actually come to understand something of what the Lord's Prayer actually is for us. Let's take a look now at how this actually works in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount begins in the Beatitudes, and it ends. Now, remember, if I come back here, something I didn't say properly. All right, come back, got to get rid of all of those. This, is, this represents an approach to the way nearly uh, the Scripture is written almost everywhere, And has anybody, just excuse me, would you raise your hands if you've heard the word chiasm or chiasmus before? Okay, a few have. All right, many passages of scripture are written in such a way that the most important part is in the middle, not at the end. When we write something for an argument, we argue toward a conclusion and the conclusion is the last thing we say and that's the important thing we're trying to get to. Well, in the scriptures and in the ancient languages, they didn't argue the same way. Their arguments, the important bit was put right in the centre. And we still use it sometimes in our language. It's kind of like, I'm going to tell you something. Now, there is this, this, and this. And the main point I'm trying to say is this. Now, can you see why this, this, and this? Now, did you get what I tried to say? That was a chiasmus. I started, I'm going to tell you. And then I ended, I told you. I said, do you better get this? Because this is what I'm saying. Now, did you get it? See, I told you. So we went into the middle and came out again. If you've had many disputes, you'll often find listening carefully, they're often in some of the more heated family conversations. We often use chiasmuses with each other. But the, the fact is here, this was a formal way of doing it. And I wanna show you in this section here, just exactly how the Sermon on the Mount works here. So it begins with the beatitude that tells you the disposition or the, or the attitude of heart, the way you need to be in order to be a person who gets to be what God wants us to be. It's kind of like if you're going to climb the mountain, you've got to be pointing toward it. If i want to climb a mountain, I could have my back to it, which means any movement I make is unlikely to get me up there. Right, Or I could be standing side to the mountain, which means that any movement I like is likely to take me around the mountain but won't get me up there. To climb a mountain, I actually have to have the disposition of pointing toward the mountain and looking up. So these are your dispositions. This is the beginning, and here is once I've climbed the mountain, I'm going to go out there, then they're the two ways that I've got to live. Then we come to, Jesus says, okay, now that you're climbing the mountain, the way you climb the mountain is you understand what the law really is all about. I could spend a lot of time on that, but I won't. But it actually has to do with character and the kind of person I am. And once you've got it and you're coming down off the mountain, you'll be living in its fulfillment. Then he says, but not only do you have to fulfill the law, but you've got to go past it. You've got to go past what everybody thinks is just living by right and wrong. And when you're coming down, that means you've got all sorts of treasures. Then, as you're coming up and you understand that this is your commitment, then you really know how to come before God. Now it's not that God is ever reject us if we don't. It's kind of like, unless we're going this way, we don't get the true understanding. God saying, "I want you to know my heart. I want you to be pointing toward me. I want you to be climbing toward me because I want to meet you and I want to know you. And we've got to know each other as we are because actually I created you to be what you are. And I'm really the only one who knows how fearfully and wonderfully you are made and what you're for and what life is all about. And if you could only understand how to climb the mountain of the Lord, you will come to see me and know me. And Jesus then said, well, you've got to avoid empty prayer. Don't get prattling on. It's not like being super religious or anything. You've got to know how to come to me in a place of genuineness and reality. And then, having prepared everybody for this sacred thing, he said, now, I'll tell you what prayer is. And it's the seven petitions of the Lord's Prayer. Seven beautiful statements built into the Lord's Prayer. But it's for those, and it's not like there's an exclusion. Everybody's invited. But to enter into it and to appreciate it, you need to be people who appreciate its context. Now, we could spend weeks just unpacking the Sermon on the Mount, which is one of the most amazing things that are said. But here is this beautiful nugget, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I can't say any more about the Sermon on the Mount now because we're now going to take a look at the Lord's Prayer itself. And then I'm going to give you a few thoughts on that and that will end tonight. And what I'd like you to do, if you're going to come back next week and you're going to listen to some more about these things, what I'd like you to do, when you go home, read slowly through the Sermon on the Mount. Read the Lord's Prayer, and read it slowly. These things cannot be appreciated quickly. And I'll just give you a few little nuggets from the Lord's Prayer to meditate on before we go, but, uh, and then we're going to get into it in greater depth next week. Now, the Lord's Prayer itself, there it is as we know it, and here we've got the for the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours now and forever. And the interesting thing is that is not part of the Sermon on the Mount, so I won't be dealing with it in this series. Uh, it's a gloss that was added, and if anything, it relates to Second Chronicles 9, verse 11, if anybody wants to look that up. It's not unscriptural, it just simply isn't part of the Lord's Prayer as it appears in the Gospels at all. Um, I think it's a lovely thing to say and a lovely way to add to it, because it certainly does reflect a lot of the purpose of the Lord's Prayer, but... Strictly speaking, uh, in a disciplined way, it's actually not part of it. Okay, let's take a look now at what we're going to do. The Lord's Prayer itself is also a chiasmus. These things are all over the Scriptures. And it begins by praying for our Father in heaven and ends for a prayer to be delivered from evil. In other words, God, you're my father, the devil is not. And that brackets the entire thing. And it's interesting that in the prayer for deliver us from evil, when we get into it, and we'll cover this a bit more later on when we get there, the way it says deliver us from evil has this delightful ambiguity in it, where it can mean deliver me from the one who is evil, Deliver me from the corruption and the evil that is in me and deliver me from the bad things that are happening in this world. It's kind of like this net that scoops everything. But the Lord's prayer begins with the acknowledgement of our Father and a prayer to walk free from that which is not his will or his purpose in me, in the world, or in the spiritual powers that oppose me. It then prays this beautiful thing, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. And opposite that, it's saying, lead us not into temptation. Lord, let me not be drawn away from giving true honour to your name, true honour and understanding of your kingdom and true commitment to your will and purpose. Now, look at the interesting thing about prayer as you see it so far. This is not talking about praying for things. It's not saying, keep me safe on the car. We can pray those things. That's called supplication. That's mentioned elsewhere in the scriptures. But the Lord's Prayer, when the Lord said, I'm going to teach you how to pray, he didn't teach us supplication. It's closest, if you know the ACTS acronym, closest to adoration. Adoration. And it basically says, Lord, let me be the kind of person who knows how to live in a place of completely honouring you and your purpose. And Lord, let me be a person who is not seduced or pulled away to what this world wants of me. It's an interesting thing. I have a little favourite saying where I say that people... People often try to make sure that Christianity is relevant to the world and not. I say, look, that's a serious mistake. We're not here to make God relevant to the world. We're here to show the world how to be relevant to God. Having said that, we've got to be understandable. And we've got to communicate in the language of people. In that sense, yeah, okay, if it's only in that sense do we have to be relevant. But the reality is we are not here to follow the temptations and the demands of the world, we are to be a people who hallow the name of God, want his kingdom to come, and want his will to be what happens on this earth. And that's where we come to on earth as it is in heaven. And we also know that on earth we don't do things right. So we muck things up. And this is where the grace of God comes in. And it's why, in order to be a people who live for the kingdom of God and who are spared evil, a people who honour the name of God and don't want to walk into temptation, we're going to say, Lord, we want it to be here on earth in the real world, but, Lord, we really need to know how to walk in forgiveness. When I get to deal with this, this is one of the most amazing things that you unpack in terms of how we live and dispose of our lives. Remember, this is not just words we say. It has to do with the total disposition, the way our life is pointed. And then in the middle of it, it says this really amazing thing. Give us this day our daily bread. And the original language of that phrase has had scholars discussing its depth from the beginning of Christianity. Right, And I don't have time to unpack that. But basically, we can say part of its meaning is, and Lord, within that context, Lord, provide me for what I need. It means a lot more than that. But provide me with what I need so that your will is being done on earth as it is in heaven, so that I'm able to forgive those who don't do the right thing. Lord, provide me with what I need so that your name can be hallowed And so that we're not led into temptation. Lord, provide me with what I need so that I can come to know you deeper and deeper as my father, as our father who's in heaven, and that we can be a people who live free from the evil that is in ourselves, from the evil that is in the world, and from the evil one, himself. It's an entire life agenda. And it's not something that a, a quick lecture like this can, can just throw out and do. There's a lot I've, I've exposed tonight. But it's we've got to spend time letting ourselves be marinated by it, saturated in it. And uh, I, I've known of some people who would get up of the morning, and I've, some various people, some very influential people in the history of the world, the very first thing they would do is they would get up of the morning, and by the way, please don't try to follow these things because each person has their own grace, but if it's meaningful to you, this is just an illustration. They would get up of the morning, and they would pray the Lord prayer with intense, focused attention, saying, Lord, let me pay attention to every syllable, to every word, Lord. Let this be something that saturates my life. Let me live this today. It has to do with the disposition of our entire being. And here endeth the lesson. <laughs> Let's pray. Our Father, who art, let me use the ancient form, in heaven, you who are intimately our Father, not my Father, our Father, who art in heaven. Let your name, Lord, be hallowed and reverenced and respected. Let your kingdom come. Let this earth be what you wanted it to be. Let this universe be what you wanted it to be. Let your will, your ways be done here in Bensville, in the Central Coast. Lord, let this be heaven on earth. Lord, give us the provision and the supernatural grace that we need. So that, Lord, we can... Be forgiven by you for where we fall short in all of those things. And Lord, we can just the same way, Lord, we can can we please be the people who can forgive others who fall short of us. Forgive us, Lord, for the way we damage you. Lord, the same way let us forgive the people who damage us. And Lord, show us how to avoid the traps and the pitfalls. That seduces and damage us in this world. And Lord, deliver me from the corruption that's in my own heart, from the evil one who would like to magnify that. And Lord, from the terrible things that happen in this world. And now I'm prepared to say, Lord, that all be done, for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever and everybody said